So this is much more of a kind of friendly way of communicating with your healthcare provider and then taking the time to self-assess before things get really bad and you're like, oh, actually, I do need medical care. Welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael. And with me, as always, is someone whose party trick is that she knows all of the collective nouns to all of the animals. And that is Dr. Kaylee Byers. You uh, you really set the bar high, all of the collective nouns. Do a couple of them. There's only like two, right? There's like the gaggle of fish and the... The murder of crows, the mischief of, of rats... Obviously, I knew rats. The the parliament of, uh, there's a parliament of- It's owls, I think, isn't it? Of owls. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So actually, if anybody's listening and they have any of their own favorites, you should tweet at us at our socials at NerdNightYVR and let us know what it is. Yeah. We're, we're just a gaggle of nerds right now. I was going to say, yeah, like if ever there was a collective noun for us, it would be probably something like a gaggle or a giggle of nerds. And uh, to join into our gaggle or a giggle of nerds today, we are overjoyed to introduce you to Dr. Allison Mueller. Dr. Mueller is a postdoctoral fellow at UBC where she studies how virtual health interventions can facilitate healthcare communications with patients during COVID-19. Hi, Allison. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, I don't mind this rain because it turns into snow on the mountains. So Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And maybe one day we'll be able to go to those mountains. <laughs> we, we can go. You just have to book ahead. Speaking of sort of booking and appointments, uh, we're going to talk a little bit today about healthcare and appointments for healthcare. And, and you specifically work in the field of virtual and digital health. So what is digital health? Very good question. Yeah, so digital health and just virtual care in general is the delivery of care remotely that uses technology. So this can include text messaging, uh, mobile apps, uh, video chat, basically anything that's using a virtual medium in order to facilitate communications between a patient and their healthcare provider. Even something like medical chatbots or clinical diagnostic tools using AI also fall under the virtual care category. So it's pretty broad, but uh, my, my research mainly focuses on patient care and communicating with uh, healthcare professionals via this wonderful application called WellTel, which isn't really an app. It's, it's kind of cool. It uses, it uses a different set of technology. So patients don't actually need the internet in order to be able to communicate with their healthcare provider. Oh, that's very cool. So what are the aims of WellTel? It's to set up a communications between patients and a healthcare provider? Yes. WellTel is a hub for healthcare providers and it's being used throughout BC as well as in Rwanda and Kenya, but it's essentially an interface that healthcare providers will use in order to communicate with their patients. And what's really exciting is that it uses SMS text messaging. So um, we are able to reach remote areas that have cell service, but don't necessarily have internet service. So it's text messaging. It's very, very easy. And we can use additional uh, services. So we can do video chats and we use Zoom in order to do video chats. But 
What's exciting about having this hub is that all of the information is in one secure place that the healthcare practitioner can look at and see what communication has happened in the past, because everything that's in a text is something that you can go back and read. And it also allows for like semi-automated messages to be sent out. So for example, during COVID, they're checking in on people every day. So instead of having to physically call each patient, you can send out a text message to their phone and then they can respond okay or not okay. And WellTel has natural language processing where they can recognize that. And if something is okay, then the healthcare practitioner doesn't need to reach out, but they know that the patient has responded. But if they respond with something like not okay, then an alert comes up on their dashboard and then they can then communicate with the patient. So it takes a lot less time away from the healthcare provider when something is going awry or when a patient wants to reach out. So it's kind of like a triage. When you go to the hospital and they see what might be up with you, they go, oh, that's more serious. Like you get to go in right away. <laughs> and you over here, maybe you can you can wait a little while longer, or maybe you actually don't need any care. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's just nice to to kind of reach out to a patient and ask, are you okay? Or how are you? I believe the, the actual what we use is how are you? Because it's not specific. Um, if someone else ends up looking at your phone, they're not going to assume that it's affiliated with a healthcare provider. And it's welcoming, right? Because when you ask someone how they are, they take a moment to self-reflect. So this is much more of a kind of friendly way of communicating with your healthcare provider and then taking the time to self-assess before things get really bad and you're like, oh, actually, I do need medical care. If I had, you know, taken the time to kind of self-reflect, I might have come up with an issue sooner. So what happens if somebody just responds with like an emoji? So somebody texts me, how are you? And I just respond with the head with the extoed eyes, like we talked about earlier, which nobody seems to understand what that is. <laughs> so we do let people know when they're enrolling that it is text message based. So we cannot recognize emojis. It does show up as like a question right. mark or like some the, you know, the gobbledygook. And that would be registered as a not okay because it doesn't fall under the okay category. So it's essentially like an unrecognized response. And then the healthcare practitioner can be like, sorry, we couldn't recognize your response. So this seems quite involved, but how did virtual how did virtual health start? I'm familiar with what we've done in the past. So the very first instance was actually done with nurses' own phones. So my supervisor, Dr. Richard Lester, was in Africa, and he noticed that lots of people had cell phones, not necessarily internet, but they were using cell phones regularly. And one of the issues with healthcare just in general is adherence to care, right? So like we know this very often, like we'll get given, a, you know, antibiotics and then you start feeling better. So you don't take the full antibiotic regimen, which you should always do. Always go to the end of your antibiotics, even if you feel better. But yeah, it's adherence to healthcare, And these were HIV patients that were going to be, you know, just wanting to see regularly and see how their health was doing. The idea was just to send them a text message. So nurses would send them text messages from their phones. Uh, just to remind them about appointments, ask how they're doing, if they have any concerns or need any care. So this was published in The Lancet in, I believe, 2010. And it was the very first example of this being used. And it wasn't in like a, an internet hub or anything. It was literally just nurses text messaging. And then it moved, I think it turned into um, a hub in 2013. And we've been working 
on it ever since. So incorporating the natural language learn, like natural language processing in order to be able to recognize different forms of the word okay, different forms of the word not okay, so that it's able to separate it out. And we're also working on something else called Convoscope, which takes that to a further level where it kind of categorizes conversations based on topics. So using AI learning technology to recognize if someone's talking about a specific disease, such as diabetes or cardiovascular disease, versus if they're talking about their finances, for example. So we can actually separate out conversations using AI and visualize this using this technology that we're currently developing. But it started with nurses text messaging patients. So Allison, I actually went through the contact tracing experience uh, earlier this year. And what was really interesting is I would talk with my friends because we were all called, like there was, so there was somebody physically called us and uh, asked us how we were feeling. And for me, I really liked that experience because I was talking to somebody on the phone, whereas my friends found it really frustrating and they probably would have liked text messages. So while I can see like this system you know, would be more effective, like it's saving time uh, from a nurse actually, you know, spending time on the phone and, you know, me procrastinating because I'm, I'm talking about my day and, you know, I'm just lonely and want to have a conversation. But <laughs> is there data that this is actually more effective than a phone call? So that's that's very good, very, very good question. So we're actually doing contact tracing using Welltel in Rwanda right now. So what's really exciting is that both the case and their contacts are put into the database. And it's at a national level, so it's throughout all like all of Rwanda. So when someone come, becomes positive, the system just sends out the message and provides information on how they can contact a person to talk to on the phone because it's an initial mode of communication. So they're able to receive that at any time. They're given the information that's required, and then they can proceed on to a phone call because all of the information required to kind of safely quarantine and answer any questions that does need to be an in-person phone call. Um, and that's what's happening in Rwanda, in Rwanda. But initially, that first contact of like, you are a contact, please get in touch with us, is very much a good step forward. And it also reduces the burden of nurses because there's what if there's 16, 600 cases a day happening in BC, that's phone calls to all of those contacts that nurses are spending taking time out to actually try to get a hold of these people. If it's a text message that's just sent out and then they're receiving the phone calls and whoever doesn't respond to the text message, they there's a record of it. It's like, okay, we sent it to these people. They haven't responded or they haven't con contacted us. Well, then let's contact them. But that might take numbers from 600 people down to 30 people that they have to, you know, context of 30 people that they have to like try to get a hold of, right? Because the key is to get a hold of people as quickly as possible because this is the first time something to the scale has happened. There's no real research kind of assessing that, but because we have access to our Welltel database information, and then there's also the information that's coming locally through um, the province, now research can be done to compare, right? You always need a control study when you're doing a scientific study. So that can be our control is like technology from the 1940s, the telephone versus technology now. And if this is actually helpful, right? So you were talking about how it's being used for contact tracing in Rwanda. What is it being used for here in BC? Um, so it's being used here for patient care. Um, we've got quite a few sites. So we're actually in Haida Gwaii and we have been in Haida Gwaii for quite a while. And it's there just as like a patient communication tool to communicate with 
the uh, healthcare authorities there. Um, and it's been there for quite a few years now. We also are in the pediatrics cardiology unit at the BC Children's Hospital. So we're doing some research there and there because they have a teen population. They've actually really, really liked the whole texting aspect of communicating with their, their healthcare providers. We're also within the Mental Health Institute, uh, the Siegel Institute. So there's research being done there. We're, we're still at the beginning beginnings of starting that. It's a fairly new project, but that's to follow patients after they've been discharged from the Siegel Mental Health Center. We're pretty much all over the place, coordinated all over the place. Like we're, th- we're throughout BC. And then one of the upcoming potential projects that's on the radar is to be used with post-care clinics of patients that have COVID-19. So these clinics, the first one's already up, I believe, in St. Paul's, but the idea would be to follow these patients through WellTel and using that communication service to kind of understand the long-term symptoms of COVID-19. And that's, they want to use this as a tool to be able to communicate because lots of patients don't necessarily live locally, right? So that's another thing that virtual care, it really facilitates. It's you don't have to travel. And especially with a pediatric population that have heart disease, they're coming from all across the province because BC Children's is like the only hospital where you have all of those experts. So instead of having to travel in order to see a physician, you can just text them and let them know how you're doing. And then they can like send out a prescription, have a video chat, determine whether or not it's actually necessary for you to come all the way to BC Children's. So it's really nice in that regard. And then it's also something that you can, if you feel comfortable, it's something where you can be in continuous communication with your physicians. So there's, and there's a record of it, right? So you can go back to previous texts and be like, oh yeah, on this day, I felt this. And that's, that can be very, very useful, life-saving information. So Allison, we already talked about the emoji coming into the future, but where do you see this platform going? Where do you see sort of like this, uh, this technology expanding into the future? I personally would like to see it everywhere because I think the just the the ease of communicating with a healthcare provider is so valuable because so many patients fall through the cracks once they get discharged from the hospital or once they leave. So I would like to see it everywhere. I mean, yes, emojis would be nice. And we do use Zoom for video conferencing. Um, I understand that there's a lot of technologies out there that are recording health stats, for example. So your Fitbit tracks a bunch of physiological parameters and that data could be incorporated into virtual care. So you can do lots of self-assessment. I know that there's a few technologies out there that are being developed kind of like the tricorder. You guys are familiar with the tricorder from Star Trek? Trek? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there was, there was a prototype called Scanadu Scout where the patient would literally just put this something like a white tricorder on their forehead and it would get like their oxygen levels, their temperature, um, and a few other just basic baseline parameters and then have a record of it. So I don't know if it made FDA approval yet, but that technology is happening. So being able to merge kind of self-assessment technology with virtual care to provide physicians with baseline data is fantastic without a patient having to leave home, right? To be able to sit at home, communicate with a doctor on Zoom, be able to click a button and scan themselves and be like, hey, these are my vitals. One thing that we noticed with um, WellTel in Rwanda is we asked them if they feel any symptoms. And one thing that they were doing in response was actually sending their temperature. So they would take their temperature and they'd send their temperature. And so there's like a record of on that day, this is the 
this is the patient's temperature. So it's it's really nice to be able to have access to that data, which is something that a phone call, like unless you're recording a phone call, which I like I don't think is the norm in a healthcare setting, it's nice to be able to have that because the more information a physician has, the better care they can take of you. Yeah, that's really cool. Though I have to say that if there's ever a time where we all have our own tricorders, it's going to turn into <laughs> me just sitting in my apartment scanning myself every five minutes and having a mini heart attacks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like there's a balance, right? Well, that brings up something interesting that I came across on your blog because you're a science communicator, Allison, and uh, you said on your blog that you were involved in collaborative science communication ventures with a common theme of merging science fiction with cutting edge medical research. Could you maybe expand a bit on that? How are you doing that? Uh, yeah, so that's essentially something that I was doing pre-COVID. I would attend Comic Cons and basically talk about science fiction inspired technology that you see in real life. So one of the best examples of that is tissue engineering, right? So looking at the idea of, like, I mean, the idea of super soldiers, right, is just prevalent through so much of science fiction, whether it be like genetic manipulation or using stem cells or cloning or all that kind of stuff. So I would take that and I'd be like, well, actually, it's not that exciting. Um, (laughs) But this is what's what's happening in real life. So with CRISPR, for example, I look at Gattaca. So are you guys familiar with Gattaca? One of the greatest movies of our time. Yes. (laughs) It is a wonderful movie. And I love it because it touches on so many like very true themes that people are genuinely like concerned about. It's like if we can manipulate genes that way, like what does that actually mean for the future? So I juxtapose that with what's actually happening, happening in CRISPR and in genetic modification. And it's like, well, in order to modify a gene, you need to know what gene is responsible for the modification that you want. And so much of what Gattaca is focused on are things that we don't know about, right? Like we understand that sickle cell anemia is a mutation of one, it's one thing gone wrong in your genetic code, right? You fix that, no sickle cell anemia. But something like beauty or physique or intelligence is like, well, lots of that is subjective, number one. And number two is like, we don't know what genes are involved with that because that's not a health concern, right? If you are predisposed to having aggressive type of breast cancer, yeah, we know that because we've done the studies to be able to do that. So maybe in the future, if you as a future parent want to prevent that from being passed on, maybe, but currently that's very, very much illegal and very, very much not like an interest in most funding agencies, right? Like this idea of designer babies is not like, it's very, very hyped up in sci-fi, but practically there's, there's one, there's no legal precedent for it. And two, it's not really that much of an interest for actual people. And we don't really have the technology to manipulate something that we don't understand, right? What, uh, in what year is Gattaca based? (laughs) Ooh, that's a good question. I'm saying like, how long do we have to get there? Like, yeah, we're not there now. Believe the okay, so the amount of like ethic hurdles that we as a virtual care like platform have to go through just to be able to talk to patients is already enough. Like when you're talking about manipulating the genes of unborn babies, a few extra hurdles, <laughs> yeah, just a couple extra. Uh, should we go to some nerd herd questions? Yeah, let's get to the nerd herd questions. Why is the sky what's at the center of a black hole? Oh, we evolved? Does anyone have free will? Is like carbon it's based? The fastest thing on earth. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. 
So if you want to get on the Nerd Herd questions, we post on our socials at NerdNightYVR. And our first one comes from Danielle. Could virtual health drive inequities to health? So for example, if people don't have access to a computer or internet, could these exasperate language barriers? Yes. So that's a very good question. So most people are familiar with virtual care via an app that requires internet and a smartphone, etc. So if that's the direction of the virtual care that's being funded and being supported, that will limit access. Um, And uh, we do have a paper coming out that talks about actual people in Vancouver's access to smartphones and healthcare. And I think 30% of the inpatients didn't have a smartphone. Um, The great thing with Welltel is because it was developed with access in mind. So we want to be able to communicate with the most rural populations out there. So we're currently working in a very um, nomadic rural area in Kenya called Samburu. And we're able to communicate out there because they have a cell signal. So Welltel only requires you to have a cell signal. And Africa, for the most part, did a very good job of enabling cell signals throughout the continent to facilitate communication. So you do not need the internet as a patient to use well tell and be part of the system and because it's an open language platform it it can be used in like any language so we have data from conversations from uh the first wave of uh, covid in rwanda and so i'm able to assess uh, or look at conversations in english because there's some english french we have a we have a few conversations in french as well as in kenya rwanda which is the rwandan language so well is able to have all of that information in the native language so it's not language barrier. So as long as the texting uh, permits the characters, then it's fine. Language isn't really a barrier as long as you're able to read and and text. And if that is a barrier, then there are additional things that need to be done um, socially to facilitate reading. But yeah, no, there's the whole point of Welltel is to reach the furthest possible patients to give them access to care. Cool. Second question comes from Elisa. Have there been any controversies around development of this kind of virtual health, any conflicts of interest or anything like that around the development and use of these apps? So I'm not really aware of anything specific regarding conflicts or kind of, yeah, conflicts of interest. Uh, But I do know that there are a lot of apps out there. Um, So one that some of uh, the listeners might be familiar with is Babylon. So Babylon Health, they actually have an office down here in Vancouver. And it's an app and it allows patients to reach out through the app to a healthcare provider that is supported by the app. So it's not it's not like their familiar healthcare physician is just someone that's employed by Babylon to communicate with their patients. So the Rwandan government actually made an agreement with Babylon Health uh, for something called Babel that the Rwandan government is paying for through the citizens' health insurance so that they can use Babel if they want. Now, Welltel is also in Rwanda and they're actually being used complementary. So because Babel is a patient reaching out to a physician, that's very different from a healthcare provider reaching out to a patient to notify them. So what's happening is that initially it's the healthcare provider that through Welltel is messaging the patient. If the patient is saying that they're not okay or would need additional care, they are then directed through Babel to a physician. So ideally you would want healthcare providers to have these virtual care interventions complement each other. So yeah, there's going to be com- competition like in any you know field where there's a market, right? Please don't buy everything Facebook. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Like competition drives innovation, you know? And we have like, I mean, even now we have what, three different 
companies that are like have a vaccine that's on approval. Like we need the competition to drive innovation. So that's very, very exciting. So no, as terms of like conflicts, no, I mean, there is conflict of interest just in general when you're publishing an academic paper while you also have like a share in a company, but it's, it's something that's public. It's something that's acknowledged by the publisher, by the granting agency, by anything like in anything in academia. Right. So it's it's out there for the public to make their own decisions about whether or not it's been skewed. So our final question comes from Natalie. Has virtual health affected anxiety around seeing a doctor? So some people uh, are anxious when they go into the doctor's office. Just being in the doctor's office makes them anxious. Does this app, this virtual health, alleviate some of that anxiety? Uh, that's a very good question. So for our group, we actually have a uh, focus group like questionnaire that we distribute to patients, healthcare providers, et cetera, that actually ask about how they feel about using this service. And it's been overwhelmingly positive. I think we have 90, over 98% of the patients that have used it would recommend it. So it's not even just that they've appreciated the platform, but that they would recommend it throughout their healthcare. So uh, yeah, there is definitely a genuine physiological reaction. If you're nervous to go to a doctor's office, that's that's something that can affect uh, blood pressure readings. So we currently can't do blood pressure readings through WellTel, um, but maybe like with another technology, we'd be able to have that information. But yeah, it's uh, another thing that's been observed is because we're communicating with teenagers through BC Children's, what's happened is that they'll go and they'll have a, a meeting with their doctor and they'll talk a little bit and then they'll go home and then they'll actually ask a question that they didn't feel comfortable asking through text message. Because the other thing that text message allows you to do is it allows you to construct and think about your question and be able to ask it in a way that you feel comfortable rather than like blurting something out or worrying that you're going to say something silly or like not having your thoughts together, right? So that's the good thing about text messaging is you can take the time to ask. And this is something that we've noticed a lot, um, especially with the teenager population, is that they're far, far more comfortable texting than they are necessarily face-to-face. -face. Even like regardless of Welltel, but there was a pub uh, study published by the Canadian Medical Association uh, as a national poll that Canadians are very satisfied with overall virtual care that's been happening across the country. So it's something that people are, especially now, because there's so much Zoom calling, right? Like they're, people are much more comfortable being at home and then communicating. So I think it's been overwhelmingly positive based on just generic thoughts as well as our analysis and our surveys that we've we've conducted nice should we nerd out oh yeah what you nerding about what you nerding about So if you want to get in our nerd outs, you can also hit us up on our socials at NerdNightYVR. You could email us, Vancouver at NerdNight.com. And our first nerd out uh, comes from Trevor, who's nerding out about 70s Latvian comedies, which reminds me, when I was in a sketch comedy group, we did this sketch that was a perfect stranger sketch, which was a sitcom based out of Chicago. But Russia also had a perfect strangers sitcom as well. It had all the same characters, even even some of the same storylines by Russian actors speaking in Russian. Uh, I wonder if there's like a perfect strangers Latvian uh, show. Very interesting. 
Very specific. What about you, Allison? Yeah, I'm nerding out about historical forensic science. So I, I got given a book called The Poisoner's Handbook that is uh, focused on like the 1920s and crime and poison in New York City and kind of the chemistry um, evolution of using like science to be able to analyze bodies and figure out what poisoned them. And then I've been able to see that like actual practice through Murdoch <laughs> Mysteries, which is a phenomenal Canadian television TV show. So good. And that's set in the 1890s. But what's really cool is that Murdoch is using technologies that we're very, very familiar with in order to analyze crimes, like analyze mysteries, solve crimes and it's it's cool because you're seeing like how technology and science kind of evolved and what they used it for. And it's been interesting to see the parallels of what I'm reading in the book versus what's happening in in the Murdoch mysteries. And it's it's fantastic. Like the most recent one was there was an issue with someone being convicted of being guilty when they were innocent. And it's because the previous investigator didn't use fingerprints because fingerprints were just not the norm. But Murdoch's like, everything must be fingerprinted, right? But in the 1890s, that wasn't a thing. So it's really cool to see how those technologies have, have evolved. And now we just kind of take them for granted. You know, it's something that I find really interesting along that lines is um, medical entomology, and using, like looking at a body and being, oh, this sounds so dark, but I've always found it really fascinating. You look at a body and you go, hmm, there's a particular species of fly here, which means that this body must have been here for five days. <laughs> what? That's awesome. That's very like CSI Grissom. What about, uh, what about you, Michael? Are you nerding out about any crime things? Looking to solve some mysteries? Uh, actually, I am. Actually, a bit of a TV theme. So I'm nerding out about X-Files right now. So when the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico collapsed, uh, it reminded me about sci-fi shows that used to use it as a location because it's so just majestic. It's so cool. Um, and the X-Files did it uh, because it's a radio observatory. It has the ability to send and receive signals from space. They actually did send a message in real life to interstellar inhabitants with that telescope or in the hope of, uh, <laughs> of it reaching interstellar inhabitants. But it got me back into the show again. It's one of my favorites. And here's why it's so great. So A, it's filmed Vancouver in the 90s. So it's probably the best thing that's ever been filmed here. So it's a great time capsule of that time period. Uh, and you can figure out locations too. It's a show of two diametrically opposed scientific forces, which is the scientific method in Scully and Mulder, who is this intelligent savant that has this burning passion for the truth. And he isn't afraid to entertain wild ideas. And I love the convergence of those two characters and how they grow with each other and how they need each other. The physical convergence or like the intellectual convergence? Which, uh, the which intellectual, one? because they... Because <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, actually, there's some convergence. But the third thing that makes the, the show is so great is that it's a bit of a frightening show in that the pursuit of a conspiracy and what it can do to a person but also a society because the show basically has this large conspiracy that aliens are here but then there's this web of truth and untruth in the untangling of that main conspiracy because there's all these other conspiracies that lead you know Mulder and Scully down these rabbit holes which really just make the main conspiracy just that much more confusing and 
the truth that you know that they're seeking just gets much muddier. So the show narratively does a really good job of hooking you into what's real, what's not real, and who really trust. And as a science communicator, I think my main takeaway is that we need to trust each other as science communicators, just like Mulder and Scully keep each other in check. And overall, I think that leads to a stronger overall trust in science because there's always holes in the truth. And I guess that's what we're always fighting against. So uh, yeah, X-Files, perfect pandemic catch up for me. So wait, which one are, which one are you of these, of these characters? <laughs> um, I, I'm probably Mulder. Um, I'm spooky, probably. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you're the you're the you are the pragmatic pragmatic scully you're always keeping me in check with like we need to do, we need to do this and i'm like let's do this wild idea and you're like mm. remember time <laughs> <laughs> uh what about you what, what are you nerding about well okay that was really cute i am also going to start off nerding about something that was on tv but then i'm going to take us somewhere real different this is a bit of a holiday themed wildlife disease nerd out so last weekend okay it's it's almost the holidays here we're recording it quite a ways in advance. But last weekend, I watched um, The Claymation, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which is a 1960s film. It's a holiday classic. My brother and I always watch it together. Although, to be honest, it's kind of, and by kind, I mean pretty misogynistic. (laughs) But I deal with it because I love the humble bumble, so I put up with it. Anyway, love me some Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And today, I was flipping through Twitter and came across some reindeer disease info, which felt very on theme. And it had me thinking about Rudolph and Rudolph getting chronic wasting disease. Now, Michael, do you remember what chronic wasting disease is? Basically, it has to do with the corpses. I believe uh, it was in moose, was it? Was it the chronic wasting disease? It can be. It can be. I think that's where I first learned it in. And yeah, it's uh, basically rotting away the corpses, right? Well, it can lead to corpses for sure. Yeah, it can get you to the corpse part and then the rotting (laughs) does happen afterwards. So uh, a primer. Chronic wasting disease is a disease that affects cervids. So deer, elk, caribou. And uh, it's caused by a misfolded protein or misfolded proteins, and those are called prions. So if you haven't heard of chronic wasting disease, you've probably heard of another prion-caused disease called mad cow, right? That's sort of a similar similar thing. So chronic wasting disease is devastating. It's a devastating disease for these animals. It affects the brain. It leads to death. And then the rotting, of course, as we've learned, (laughs) then happens. Uh, So not ideal. And it's super hard to manage. So there's a lot of priority around keeping it out of healthy populations of deer and cervids. So um, in Canada, chronic wasting disease has been spread throughout our cervid population since 1996. It's infectious. So it can be transmitted to like from animal to animal and usually through in infected secretions like urine, feces and saliva that have the misfolded proteins. So that's chronic wasting disease. Okay. So back to reindeer. I was reading this uh, this tweet, and so uh, I went to a new paper that was published, and it was talking about chronic wasting disease was first documented among reindeer in Norway in 2016. And it was sort of weird. It sort of popped up, and they, they found that it was a different strain that was found in North America. And so researchers were like, what's up with that? <laughs> how did it emerge, and how did it spread? And this new study that just came out today uh, was published in Scientific Reports, and it's led by Dr. Uh, Mistrude, and it discusses how a behavior of reindeer could have potentially played a role. So the researchers looked at reindeer using photos and videos and found the animals engaging in something called antler cannibalism, <laughs> right? I was like, uh, yes, I will read this tweet and this paper. 
So while this has been known to occur, so they, they found before that reindeer and, and other cervids might gnaw on antlers, but antlers that have already been shed from the animal or on like a dead animal, they were actually seeing them eating these antlers or gnawing on these antlers of other live reindeer. So perhaps if you had, say, a misfolded protein and this was like a behavior that was happening and they were gnawing on the antlers and it would happen to be in the antlers, that was one potential way that it could have spread. But to know that, the next step is to find out whether these prions are in the antlers of infected reindeer. So poor Rudolph, I'm going to be following this very closely. So that is my nerd out. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. It took, it, it, yeah it, it took a left turn, a sharp left. You're going to be like, next time that you're around some kids watching Rudolph the Reindeer, you're going to be like, um, actually, these reindeer uh, could have chronic wasting disease. And let me tell you all about chronic wasting disease. Can we just pause the Rudolph for a second? Kids, sit down. They eat each other's antlers, okay? <laughs> <laughs> And the kids are just, you know, looking each other side eye like, uh, can we just watch the cartoon? <laughs> that woman obviously has no children <laughs> and doesn't know how to speak to us. <laughs> well, Allison, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Nerd About uh, tonight. Where can people find out more about your science communication, about the work that you're doing? So I have a blog online. It's allisciencephd.com. So A-L-I-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-P-H-D uh, dot com. I will be updating it. It's been a little while, but it's been a little busy with our COVID-19 research. But that's where I publish on science fiction inspired medical tech. And I also will be doing something a little bit more basic on just understanding um, how scientists do day-to-day experiments like cell culturing, PCR, etc. So that's coming soon. And then, yeah, I have Twitter at AllisciencePhD. Yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Awesome. So you should go and check out all of those places to follow Allison. Thanks again, Allison. This was a lot of fun. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate you hanging out with us. If you like this podcast, you can like us on Apple Podcasts. You can leave us a review. And you can get in touch with us on our socials at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. But until we meet again, let me just ask... How are you doing? Take care of yourself.